Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, everyone. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving, but I have a quick question for you. Have you heard of Christmas? Santa and Jesus, they were best, best friends. They knew each other way back in college at Bethlehem. They knew each other like, ooh, they were like, ooh, 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 ooh. Honestly, I have not been to church in a very long time. Have you heard of Christmas? It's when Moses did the lake. Have you heard of Christmas? That was the night that they made Saint Nick a saint. Have you heard of Christmas? This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was comedian Matt Rogers from his new Showtime holiday special, Have You Heard of Christmas? The musical special, which premieres this Friday, December 2nd, caps off an incredible breakout year for Matt, who also co-stars in Vanessa Bayer's Showtime series, I Love That For You, and stole the most scenes in previous Last Laugh guest Joel Kim Booster's Hulu movie, Fire Island. Matt also, of course, has been co-hosting the internet's favorite podcast, Las Culturistas, with his best friend and SNL star, Bowen Yang, for the past six and a half years. So as we get towards the end of 2022, now feels like the perfect time to have Matt on the podcast, talk about this huge year for him, how he got here, and what comes next. And yes, he also offers up his unfiltered thoughts about the bros versus Fire Island discourse, so you are definitely going to want to stick around for that. Here's me with Matt Rogers. First of all, I feel like I have to thank you for getting me into the Christmas spirit early because I just got a chance to watch your special and it was uh, so fun. Thank you so much. Um, You know, I hope it does that. Really, I guess ultimately what I hope it does more than anything is makes me a goddamn pop star. Um, yeah, that's is, really that, is that the goal? <laughs> I think isn't that everyone's goal that puts out a Christmas album? That's what, kind of what inspired it. Is I was <laughs> yeah. like, I was literally, I think it was like mm, 2017, and I was watching an interview with Mariah Carey, and the interviewer was just complimenting her on, um, like, wow, you really like nailed it, like from a capitalist standpoint, like you really are an industry <laughs> now, seasonally, year after year. And I kind of was like, hmm, <laughs> like, uh, and then it's just funny because every music act puts and like it, you know every, everyone's getting into it like across media like everyone's got like christmas material i just think that's so funny that we're we're to assume that all these people are obsessed with this holiday like i don't think so <laughs> yeah well mariah carey is a, a sort of a running theme throughout the special you describe her as your north pole yeah. <laughs> um for for the for the special um 
I did see uh, just as we're talking the other day, um, she she lost her bid to trademark Queen of Christmas. I wanted to get your reaction to that news. Yeah, I don't think that a it's a good decision. I think you have to give this woman what she wants for her service. I mean, she's essentially a Christmas veteran at this point. She is out there in the cold, keeping her voice warm so she can give us whistle tones and Christmas cheer year after year. It has to <laughs> warrant something. Like I don't know who these snobs are, but. Ultimately, you know, I think that she she's got to stay hungry because she's got to have a reason to keep going out there year after year. That's uh, you know just outside of justifying that glam budget. Um, so so you know <laughs> she she's staying hungry, and I, I believe that before before the final word is spoken on it, she will be officially categorically the queen of Christmas. Just not yet. Um, in the special, you you joke a lot about you know trying to to get her as a special guest. Um, I was curious, did you actually uh, reach out to her, try to get her involved in this at all, or was was it all uh, sort of a, a running joke? I actually did. So basically, um, there was this pie in the sky, you know, idea that she would come in at the end of the special and like crown me the Prince of Christmas and justify the whole special, and it would be this big gag at the end. And then I realized that. Probably what was best for our budget and best <laughs> for our time and best for my own uh, mental health because I probably would have had a breakdown had I met her like while shooting the special because I was stressed out enough. I was like, you know what? Why don't I try something else? I was I in the live show that I do and I tour with the show every year, including this year. At the end, I usually close it. Uh, it's entirely an original album that I that I per- perform, but then at the end I sing "All I Want for Christmas Is You," and I do this bit with the audience where I try to get people to sing the final last note, the "you," you know, see if someone can nail it. Um, and I would love love to do that for the special. So I actually wrote her a letter, and I gave it to my representatives, and we did not hear back. But I stand by the letter, and one day I will put the letter in like a book or something because <laughs> it's a good letter. I think I think if she had read it then she maybe would have entertained allowing me to sing the song. But alas. Um, what, was the, what was the case that you made in the letter? So basically I was like, look, ma'am, I'm your, one of your biggest fans. I am in the Lamely, as she calls it. That's what the Lambs are her, her fan group. And to be honest with you, she was like extremely formative for me when I was growing up. Like in 97, she released this album called Butterfly, and I was seven years old and it was the first time I ever like really connected with music. Like I was, I was literally seven, eight years old. I had shut the door and I was listening to these <laughs> very sort of mature songs about like her having a sexual awakening in her book. She talks about like, there's a song called the roof on that album. Right. And it's about the night that she and Derek Jeter were on a roof in Manhattan and it was like really sexy and it started to rain. And this song is like an R&B jam about that. And she talks about that in her memoir that came out last year or a couple years ago. And I told her this story, which was when I was young in third grade, when I was obsessed with that song, I, I had memorized it. And when I went into, into class, uh, our teacher was like, it's going to be uh, free writing time. So everyone get out your notebooks and you can write anything you want. You have to hand it in. But I want to see what you guys create when you free write. So me being a little plagiarist, I was like, I'm just going to write Mariah Carey's songs in this. (laughs) So I wrote the full lyrics of The Roof, but I didn't credit Mariah Carey. I didn't say by Mariah Carey. I just wrote the lyrics. I handed it in and my third grade teacher, and literally it's like, it's literally about like, I felt the water on my skin. You know what I mean? It's like, it was, it's like a very sexual, like sort (laughs) of sensual. Something that you probably had not experienced. 
Correct. Like, I, I certainly had not experienced them. She probably had never experienced them. But <laughs> she wrote back to me in my book when she handed it back. And I don't know why this didn't connect that maybe I shouldn't do this. She wrote back to me, Matthew, your words and your stories are so beyond your years. They are so beautiful. You truly are brilliant <laughs> and, 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 and ahead of your time. And I was like, oh, this woman is not in the lamely. You know what I mean? Like she <laughs> that, didn't that get it at all. Yeah. So that, I was like, oh, wow. Like she thinks I'm truly brilliant and maybe there's something here. So then I just kept writing like Mariah songs in there, Celine Dion songs in there. Like I was like a truly oh, yeah. gay. You're like, this is working for me. It was huge for me. And I mean, like I re- did really connect with the lyrics. So in a way I was, you know, you know, I was doing something with it, but it was just so funny that I got credit <laughs> And, you know, she was my first concert. Like, I remember, it, this is a fucked up thing. It was like, it was literally 9-11, right? And I, my mom came to get me from school. And um, it was the day the Glitter album, the soundtrack was coming oh, out. Oh, yes. And Very I famously, yeah. Yes. I literally thought she was coming to pull me out of school early so we could go to, like, Tower <laughs> Records and get the Glitter album. And so I get in the car. I'm all excited. And she's, like, grief stricken. And I'm like, what's up? And she's like, we have to go home. There's something going on and I just want you home with me. I'm 11. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, can we stop by, can we stop by the, the record store first? We got to pick up this album. You know, I've been talking about it for months. She's like, I don't think it's going to be open. I was like, what happened? She goes, you know, a plane crashed into the, the, the Twin Towers and then another plane crashed in the Twin Towers. And I was like, oh my God, do you think that, the, do you think it's really closed? Do you think the record store is really closed? <laughs> <laughs> and then we went. We went to the record store yeah, and the people are clo- we went and the people are literally still in there, but they're like closing up and they come to the door and they're like, Hi, what? Yeah. And, Why I, are you and, here? and I literally was like, I was like, my mother was like, Hey, I know you guys are closing, like we're in the midst of whatever the fuck is going on, but if I don't get him this album, my life is going to be miserable, <laughs> like in a macro and micro sense, please, please. And they were like, Okay. So I did have the album that day. And I think I was too, just too fucking young to understand like the magnitude of what's happening, obviously, um, as, as even adults did at the time. So, but that day was like, that just goes to show the fandom runs deep. It really does. Yeah. It's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that you get to collaborate with her uh, someday. Maybe she'll see the special, get inspired, realize she made a mistake. That's what I'm saying. I hope that at least at one day she at least sees my letter. You know what I mean? Whether she streams a special or not, I don't know. It, it kind of does feel like at this point, like there's going to be, you've seen it. Like it, she's mentioned a lot. Like, yeah, and she's yeah. kind of I a touch. Like she's going to hear several. about it. She might. Um, and, and, you know, so she'll definitely be aware of the fact that they're out there. does exist this, you know, gay creature who's sort of, you know, trying to meet her and interact with her. And maybe I'll get like a head nod or a wink or like a pat on the head or something. Yeah. From, I do from like there, there's a joke, I think, in your special um, where you, you do reference that uh, Billy Eichner has uh, collaborated with her before before you got to. Yeah, he sort of um, gets to add that to his list of things, huh? Like, <laughs> <laughs> were you a little jealous about that? Well, you know, I understand they have their relationship, but Billy's worked very hard and has has, has earned his uh, has earned his Mariah Carey friendship. I, I would never take that away from him. <laughs> you don't get to sing "All I Want for Christmas Is You" at the end, but you do um, get genuinely emotional during the uh, the thank yous. Um, I see tears streaming down your face um, towards the end. Either that, or you're just a very good actor. I couldn't tell. Um, is it genuine? I don't know. I guess. I, yeah, I guess people have to watch the special yeah. to see how genuine <laughs> it is. 
Um, but was I, I guess my question is, you know, what were you feeling uh, in that moment when you sort of were getting to the end of, of this taping uh, that you had been, I assume, working towards for quite a long time? Um, and, uh, and being in that room in, in Joe's Pub, which you say is, you know, somewhere that you really just dreamed of being able to see a show there, let alone perform one. So, you know, the emotion is real to an extent, because I do think that whenever you get a chance as a, as a comedian or anyone to, to have a special like this, um, where you can put everything into it and be able to point to it at the end and say, that's me, that's my sense of humor, that's my sensibility, that's what I'm capable of. Like, it's an amazing opportunity. And so this show has been like a true labor of love for me and really, you know, in many ways, what kept me going in New York, like year after year. And that's another reason I'm really happy I stumbled upon or wanted to pick on this thing of Christmas, the the, the year after year, the annualness of it. Because every year it reminds me of like my anchor, which is performing. It's what I love to do. Um, and I really, truly do love music. And it goes all the way back to my childhood when my comedic influences were to be honest with you, as a little gay kid, um, while I appreciated who were, who was popular at the time, and that's like your Dane Cooks and you know <laughs> yeah. all those guys, um, and I you know I, I certainly had to vibe with what they were doing. Like I mean, I, I listened to that BK Lounge bit a million times, like everyone else. But it was when I was alone in my bedroom again, like when I turned off Mariah and things of that nature, is when I found you know comedy albums from Margaret Cho and Sandra Bernhard. And, um, you know, these comedians that were more alt in that they would zip dip into music, that they were like, speaking to a queer audience and like riffing on pop culture and things that I felt spoke to me a little bit more. So the fact that I now get to sort of do that in that style is really, it, it connects me back to the kid that was just figuring out what a sense of humor was. You know what I mean? And so that is emotional because I, I was doing it at Joe's Pub in the sort of environment, you know, the like East Village like environment where so many of my favorite artists like cut their teeth and stuff. And I have so much history there. I went to school there. I, like I said, I grinded in comedy like all over that city and that was emotional. But what really takes me there and gets me actually emotional, which then serves the end of the show, is I have um, – on stage with me, my collaborator is um, my ex-boyfriend, my one of my dearest friends, and my musical director, whose name is Henry Kapersky. And we we wrote all of these songs together um, in good times, bad times, and weird times. And now we're in this great time where we get to have this, um, you know, piece together. You know, and this this special is, of course, it's my special, but it is our show. It is our performance. It's our thing together. And so I guess. It's hard for me to get up there and then acknowledge him at the end and not be emotional just because I've been through so much with another person. And I, I do riff on that, like, you know, comedically in the show that I kind of, you know, make fun of our relationship and the fact that, you know, we used to date. But then at the end, like, there's a person that's one of the most important people in my life and it was a turning point in my life and who I would not be able to do any of this without because he is the composer and he is the person that elevates every musical idea that I've ever had. And so it's a real partnership that I'm extremely proud of. And um, I'm so happy to have bad boundaries now uh, looking back <laughs> <laughs> because I kept him in my life, motherfucker. And it, it, it served us did. both. I was like, stick with me. I swear to God, maybe the, the romantic shit isn't popping off, but there's something here. So <laughs> is it bad boundaries or was it good instincts? Maybe both. 
Your body moves and it tells a story that's been dying to be told. In the dark of the night, I feel like I've been locked up tight for centuries. That's history. Want you to make me come alive. Also, it's Christmas. Did I mention that it's Christmas in this club? Also, it's Christmas. Tonight is the night we celebrate his son. Uh, the special really is a culmination of a huge breakout year for you. I mean, I want to talk about some of these other projects, um, and maybe we can start with I Love That For You, um, which I thought you just really jumped off the screen in that show, which I really enjoyed, um, and you're so funny in it. Um, and it was really your first big regular role on TV, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I've done the guest star thing. I've I've been on a bunch of shows. I've been super lucky to work with very cool directors and with very cool people. And, you know, interestingly enough, I actually met Vanessa Bayer, who created the show and stars in the show, um, when I was guest starring on Shrill. So I, I guest starred on an episode of Shrill, the second season, and I played Vanessa's publicist, weirdly enough. And Natasha Leone directed that episode. And my dear friend, Sudi Green, who has been my best friend since college, she was a writing supervisor at SNL. She actually now writes on I Love That For You. She's a co-EP on that. She wrote the episode. So it was this very cool mix of people, and I really hit it off with Vanessa. And then we became friends. Like We started having dinner in LA, and then came you know, pilot season. And I, of course, like every actor, like every gay actor was getting the same fucking, you know, role of sassy friend. Like you would not believe how many you're wearing. That's I have to say like <laughs> during auditions. audition season. Yeah. And then like, it's either like the sassy gay friend or to be honest with you, like the assistant. Right. And so I get this script, which is called big deal at the time. And it's by Vanessa Bayer and Jeremy Byler, who's another brilliant brilliant writer that I've known for years, um, wrote on SNL as well. They worked together on a lot of Vanessa's like iconic bits. And um, I'm reading the script and it's like, it's the assistant part. And I think, yeah, but they're so funny. Let's see what it's giving. And I loved about the show that the character I played, Darcy, was so hyper aware of the trope of the gay assistant that he was like, and just so you know, I'm not her assistant. I'm the senior associate, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and then he immediately gets treated like the assistant, you know? And so I thought, okay, this is something with a take on it. I understand functionally this is the part that I'm going out for right now. You know what I mean? Like we, as gay actors, we go out for the supporting roles. And there's a lot of assistant characters in these types of workplace comedies. Like I accept it. I get it. This elevated that. And then the pilot was one thing. And then when it went, got picked up to series, I was like, I really hope they do something with the character and his inner life that doesn't feel like something I've seen before. And then lo and behold, in the second episode, like the second scene, I'm getting this like scene with Jennifer Lewis, who is an icon. And it's, it's about what my character wants. Why are you hovering? Stop hovering. Oh, yeah, I know, just standing over you like a psycho. <laughs> so, um... I know you don't love it when people ask for time off of work, but um, the weekend of the 15th, my friend Hesok invited me to Martha's Vineyard. He got a plus one to Graydon Carter's barnwarming. He's the former editor of Vanity Fair. Yeah, I know he is. Founding father-looking motherfucker. <laughs> you ever been to Martha's Vineyard? <laughs> God, no. I just love it so much, and I've never been to France, but I do wish to go one day. <laughs> 
And then we've got Nancy and June's signature. Now, this is the Robin. It's so snobby. You'll love it. Oh my god. <laughs> Thank you so much. That rocks. <laughs> And so it's just the best. And I get to play an arc. You know, it went somewhere really interesting. Of course, there's like, you know, those things in it that feel archetypical, but there's always a twist on it. And I deeply love what the show is about. Um, and I get it. It's like interesting every day. I was actually just taking a walk and I was thinking about that, how every day I go into that job and it's like, it's never boring because I'm either working with Jennifer Lewis, Vanessa Bayer, or like Molly Shannon, you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's or, or the incredible supporting cast who everyone's getting to know now, like my pal, John O. Wilson, who he and I sort of get into a romantic thing at the end, which is going to be super exciting to play in the second season. And then Aiden Mayeri, who's Beth Ann. We have so much fun together. Poonam Patel. Yeah, she is so funny. Yeah, this is just like a really good group. I'm excited that you're going to get to do more of it. Uh, you know, it's written. It's not yet picked up. So, okay. Okay. so we, we, I don't know how I it all works. So. I hope so too. And everyone I talk to hopes so. so. And I would just say that the vibes are so good on set as well. So it ain't no problem in terms of, you know, what people think of the show or how it's going. It's just, it just needs to get picked up. So I would imagine that maybe flooding Showtime and bullying them into picking it up might work. <laughs> I've yeah. heard bullying works. I don't know. Yeah, I, know. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, there was uh, Fire Island, where you also play um, a supporting role. But this is a, a movie where you know basically all of the the characters are gay and get to play all different types of characters, and and um, it's really was revolutionary in a lot of ways. I remember I talked to Joel Kim Booster uh, right after Quibi went under and we were talking about this project. It was still called Trip at the time and its future was kind of up in the air and didn't know what was going to happen to it. Um, so it was great when it ended up getting picked up by Hulu and, you know, becoming a real movie uh, as opposed yeah, can to you a, imagine a series if it was of, a Quibi so I know. Like, it's like, it's crazy. Break. I can't imagine um, what that would have been like and it would not have been as special of a, of a thing, I really don't think. Yeah, that worked out so well. I remember I had a show on Quibi as well. It was called Game Show, and it was like an unscripted, like uh, like a literally a game show. But um, but I remember it went down, and I said to Joel, like who who hadn't gotten into production on what was called Trip at the time yet, he was disappointed. And I was like, honestly, I think this might have a life somewhere else, whatever. And then it kind of immediately did, and then it turned into an actual feature film, which it sort of always wanted to be. Um, and should have been. And then to see the script, you know, through so many revisions, because I am very close with Jill Kim and obviously Bowen is my best friend. And so we really were attached to it from the very beginning and to see it develop and become what it was and to think about the casting and then to see the cast come together and become so close. And then, you know, we actually knew at the first table read that it was going to be good. Because it was like everyone was perfectly cast. It was a really good ensemble. And even though, you know, in the movie, there's these sort of two houses. You know what I mean? There's like the rich house of like, you know, perfect looking people. And then there's the more, you know, our hero cast, which is like the scrawny, like, you know, the smaller house. They're poor. You know, everyone got along so well. And it was like a really big family. So getting together to see the movie and promote the movie was also really fun. No! The defense is wrong! No! No! The defense, defense is, is wrong! wrong. And Joe Pesci like, how do you know? And she goes, I'm positive. I'm positive. Penelope Cruz? Oh! My biological clock, clock is, is ticking like this! 
And the way this case is going, I ain't never getting married. The deer with the little bill, bam! Oh, my. I almost respect you. Bitch, who is this? In the bedroom nominee. Laura Dern. Oh, yeah, we get it. You're gay. Seriously? You couldn't get Marissa Tomei, but you got Alicia Vikander? I told you I didn't want to play. That's actually the problem with Hollywood. It's people like you who forget about Marissa Tomei, but they remember Alicia Vikander. I mean, she was really great in Ex Machina. You need to stay out of this, you. So Fire Island, I think, benefited somewhat from not having to face box office expectations because it was on Hulu and there was no accounting of the numbers and all that. Um, Unlike Bros, which it kind of got pitted against in this, I think, unfair way, which, you know, didn't do as well as people had hoped and kind of didn't reach the expectations. Um, What was your reaction to that whole discourse that happened around the release of that movie, which I don't think Fire Island got because it didn't as I said, didn't have those numbers to look at. Um, but what, what was your, how did you kind of take all that in when it, when it was happening? Yeah, the, the bros thing is complicated because, you know, during the promotion of Fire Island, we mentioned bros so many times. I mean, we were all so excited about it. And I remain excited about the fact that it's out there because I do think it's a really funny movie. And, you know, there's so many great performances in it. There's so many great jokes. I think the thing that... Um, bums me out is it feels like there's this narrative that started with placing so much importance on this doing well at the box office because of its historic nature and now ends in like, well, it didn't do well. And so let's see, let's actually talk about why it didn't do well, that we're actually drifting away from the fact that like, it's a funny, great movie and the emphasis should have been on that. Because it's hard to do press. It's it's hard. And the marketing. And there were a lot of things that went into that, I think. Yeah. And like, it's hard to get it right. You know, it's it's hard because queer audiences are fucking tough and they're smart and they don't like being condescended to and they don't like feeling like they're being painted into a corner in terms of representation. So there's a lot of checkpoints to hit. What I think ultimately is something to learn is that guess what? We are in the year 2022. We're going to move forward in time. And streaming is the way people watch movies now. So let's not denigrate streaming. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it, you don't need to be a box office juggernaut to be considered a success, especially because where exactly are the romantic comedies that are doing really great? You know what I mean? Like, sure, like, yeah, Ticket to Paradise with Julia Roberts and George Clooney makes money because they're international stars. And even that didn't do that well, really. I mean, compared to what people thought. No. And so it's like, understand that like we're already working against a stacked deck because it's a romantic comedy. Then it's a queer romantic comedy, and the messaging is primarily, you better go see this, which I'm sorry, but it was. And so, so for me watching it, I'm like, there's no reason this movie couldn't have just gone to Netflix, and then it would have been a huge success, I think. Or the narrative at least would have been, this is funny, you know, you can watch it. People are just not paying the money in the era of COVID and the year 2022 to go see romantic comedies in the theaters. Like, it's fucking expensive. Especially if you're buying more than one ticket, you want to go have dinner. Like, let's let's actually look at the financial reality of what's going on here. We're in what's basically a recession. Come on. And, and not for nothing, but like, there's a lot of big movies out there that people are saving their money for that you that that you're kind of required to see on the big screen for maximum impact. So of course we all had wished that that movie had opened to over 20 million open opening weekend. Like maybe it would have in like honestly the aughts to be to be totally honest with you. But we're not living in a time that is 
healthy for romantic comedies in terms of box office. Yeah, or comedies in general at the at the theater. Exactly, exactly. And so I think the narrative, the, 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 the sort of autopsy on it is so much more complicated and broad than, well, straight people didn't come. Because I'll be honest with you, gay people didn't go either. They yeah. didn't. They, they certainly went in more numbers than straight people. But I think it's knee-jerk and bitter. Yeah, to sort of blame it on homophobia in some way. And, and not to say that that wasn't an element of it. But let's get real here. Like, period, point blank, queer people felt condescended to by the marketing. So that's just the truth. And I think Billy is an incredibly talented guy, and he's one of my influences, and I adore him. But there's stuff to learn from this outside of, well, homophobia is pretty real, isn't it? Like, we knew that. We knew that. But also, like, there's there, there's a market for this movie, and it's fine. Just It, it being on Netflix is fine. It's, it actually reaches more people. And now to hear that it's that it's doing well on rental is like, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, of course, yeah. No, and, and people I think, will yeah. find that movie. It's great. Yeah, and both movies are great, and I don't think that they should have ever been in competition with each other. I hated that narrative because they're so different. You know what I mean? Like, and and like we were only excited about that movie. Bowen was in it. You know what I mean? I auditioned for it. I tried to get <laughs> in it. Like, I, I, I have no shame about saying it. We all did. Like, I think even Joel auditioned for it. You know, like, so this idea that that there was any animosity, at least on our side, certainly was not a thing. And then, you know, people comparing movies, like, you could look at it in a fun way. You know what I mean? Is it like a fun thing? Like, wow, finally gays get to have their Julia versus Sandra moment. You know what I mean? Like, but, but of course, like, I think we have a tendency to make things uglier than they need to yeah, be. Yeah, it all gets tainted. I do think it got a little weird, and he did he did make a weird comment about streaming movies being disposable. Yeah, Billy Billy did, and then I think Joel had a really thoughtful response to that um, as well. What was funny was when he said it, um, Joel was at Burning Man. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I remember he, he supposed fucking, to, yeah. yeah, he didn't even hear it until he got back, later. Like, but days later, and was like, "Oh, I I think something happened while I was away." Yeah, because I mean, let's talk about the word disposable for a second. You know what's disposable? Trash, garbage. So that was that was that was a shitty word to use. And I mean like I understand like I said earlier like press is hard. It's 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 hard. It's hard to walk the line especially when you're a comedian who's supposed to be like a truth teller, especially when you are someone who like Billy like has a tough time not saying what he thinks like like of course like say what you think, say what you mean, but some but understand that when you say what you mean sometimes they're going to get it in print. So that's I guess what I would what I would say. Exactly. I'm on the other side of that a lot and people's regrets. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? Like, like I said, it's hard. And ultimately the movie is really fucking funny. And, and I, and, and that's, I think, I actually think, you know, bros maybe even has like harder jokes and comedy than fire Island does, which is a completely different movie. Like fire Island is like, it's a ro- it's a romantic comedy. It's more of a romance comedy. That's really also about friendship and about um and there's a lot of sweetness to it and tons of sweetness in it. and it's about demographically how we treat each other in the queer community and it's actually an assessment on the state of you know affairs in the in the queer community and it's also an adaptation of a classic novel and so it's so many things that bros isn't that makes it sort of kind of weird to compare them honestly um cuz bros is an apatow comedy you know what i mean and it's and it's great at being that 
So that's what I would say about the whole thing. And I do think it's it's actually important to talk about it, to be open about it, because like yeah, I no, said, I'm glad that you're willing to. No, because we're well, you know what? It's like we are queer comedians. So that means two things. Queers, we've been pushed to the side of all of this for so long. So now what happens when you get pushed to the side is you can look at it and you can see it very clearly. And we're also comedians, which means we should be telling the truth. We should be saying what it is. We should be talking honestly about what our takes are and not being afraid. And it, it was hard in the immediate aftermath of the bros thing. Like we, Bowen and I have our podcast, Las Culturistas, and we, we discussed it. But it's hard because, you know, we know how sensitive it is and we know how difficult it is to promote yeah, a movie. And you don't want to be seen as like going after that no. movie or anything like that. Because like I said, I only loved the movie. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, but, but when you're talking about how you make a movie and then also promote it and have it hit and do well, you know, that's also something that I think is, is also a fine line. And it's also another part of being in this business. And it's a frustrating part of being in this business because, of course, we all just want good work to be seen and accepted and loved because it's good. But that just isn't how it works. And so it is important to, I think, take notes from these things. And my big note pulling away, looking at bros is nothing wrong with being on Netflix. Nothing wrong with being on HBO Max. You know what I mean? Like that that movie looked like a streaming movie, felt like a streaming movie. And I don't say that because I think it was disposable. I say that because I think it was fucking great and I wanted people to see it. And now they are because you can rent it. Coming up, Matt tells the story of how he met his best friend, Bowen Yang, and reveals how he felt when they both auditioned for SNL, but only one of them got the gig. 
And um, so we were sort of the only gays in each of the group. So, uh, so I think there was this I- ideology from the straight people in the groups like oh they'll be friends like you know what i mean like the gays will be friends and it'll be fun for us and you know we sort of resented that at first and i think looked at each other like mm. you know it's like very like alphabet and glinda at the beginning of wicked like <laughs> not her and then ultimately like just kinetically and chemically yeah, like we were are right. best, we were right you guys friends. should be friends yeah, yeah. <laughs> we 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 make each other laugh more than anyone else. Like, we speak a language together. I truly feel like he's my twin that was born on a different day in a different place in the world. You know what I mean? But, like, we are, like, like that. And so that's where we started our friendship. And, you know, it was a sort of... We sort of worked together, like, on an independent sketch group called Pop Roulette, which was a musical sketch group. And then kicking around in New York doing stupid bits together. And ultimately, we did the podcast because we, we, we I think, knew we had, like, a fun dynamic not thinking people would like really enjoy the podcast because ultimately like this wasn't a time when podcasts were huge. It was 2016. And so we thought, oh, this will just be a fun thing for us to do together for 90 minutes a week. Genuinely. So thinking that everything else was going to be the thing. Like I thought like I would get on a UCB team and then I like, which I did. And then I thought that that would like be the thing. And I would get a, like an agent or a manager. And like, that wasn't necessarily it. Like I thought when I got JFL, like, you know, then I would like go right to the pipeline of Saturday night live and, you know, da, da, da. and then like all, all these things like don't work out. Meanwhile, what was organically growing was the podcast situation, like Las Culturistas, like it becoming this thing that through word of mouth connected with people and they grew to really, really love. And then we toured with our show. I don't think so, honey. And so it was just really cool because this thing that I thought was special, which is my friendship with Bowen, like really connected with people. And I genuinely feel like it's our back and forth in our friendship that invites people in. And now I understand the podcast thing. Cause I really didn't, I didn't fucking get it. You know what I mean? I was like, who wants to listen to a podcast? I, I really, I really, <laughs> I really did not get it. And so then all of a sudden, like I, I did understand because it also, it, it really taught me how to use my voice as an individual. Like I was not really doing stand up at the time. I was like a sketch boy. And so then all of a sudden I found out, Oh wow. Like that's me. Like that's my voice. I can hear it. Um, and so it it elevated not only just like our profile, but also like our ability to communicate comedically. Was it, I don't know what the timeline is. Did you, the two of you auditioned for SNL at the same time? Was that before the podcast or after you'd already been doing that during the podcast? So we had essentially like the podcast had started to do really well and it was 20, I think 18. And um, they had asked to see Bowen before, but, and I had gone to JFL. I was a new face JFL you know, characters person, which is like pretty much like a big benchmark for like people that go into SNL. And after that, I thought I had crushed, but they didn't want to see me. And I was like, oh, that's weird. But they were seeing Bowen. And of course, that's weird in any best friendship, you know, where you're both going for the same thing. Like, and you actually have like a business together. You know, there's lots of like weirdness there, but also you're excited, but also you're waiting to see what's going to happen. And it's already a very anxious, like, you know, high octane environment, like auditioning for that. Very stressful. And everyone's young too. We were like 27. And so they didn't take him the first two times he auditioned and screen tested. And then finally they asked to see me, um, based on a tape that I had sent in. And then the showcase happens and then they brought him right back in for another screen test. They wanted to see him more. So then ultimately we both screen test at the same time. 
and we both get put on hold for like six months. And then we audition again. We screen test again. I screen test a second time, like on the stage at Rockefeller Center, whatever, the whole thing. And he gets put in the, he gets hired as a writer and I get the chop. I get nothing, which, you know, it depressed me for sure. I'm like a, I'm like a kid from Long Island, ultimately, who the proximity, I'm like a working class kid from Long Island. Like my parents were always watching SNL. It was a major thing for me. And then doing sketch comedy all through my 20s and then finally getting your chance and you get two chances. It sucks. It, it, it really hurt. And then he was not my first best friend to like be hired there. And so I kind of felt like, yeah, no, Sudi Green, who was my other best friend in school, who actually was in Hammercats with me, I mentioned she earlier. She became a writer there. She had been a writer there for like five or six years. And so she actually was on the panel watching us oh, screen wow. test. Yeah, that's so this gotta was, be weird. It was thick. It was just like there was so much going on. And so ultimately I I did not get it. And that was tough. I mean, because because like I said, I didn't know what would happen with the podcast. I did not know if they'd allow him to keep doing it. Ultimately they did. And then I don't know what I'm doing with my career because I'm thinking that was my end game, to be honest with you. And then to finally get the opportunity and, you know, what I assumed at the time was fucked it up. I was like, oh shit, like now what? And then I did the Christmas show again that year and it sort of brought me back to life. I moved to LA and shortly after that, I I was staffed writing on the show, The Other Two. Um, It's a very funny show and I had a great, interesting experience working on it. It was my first industry job and you know, I see a lot of stuff that I offered to that room in the second season, so that's great. They're currently shooting the third season, um, but that was like a learning experience too. Because I, had, I even though I had studied TV writing in college, I had never worked in the business in that way because I had been like pounding the pavement, like doing my like little queer alt comedy. All of a sudden, to be in a in a writer's room is very different. Yeah, it's really different, and and also I don't think people understand what it's like until you actually get in it. Um, so then I started working as a writer, and then I was I also wrote for the Netflix animated series Q Force, and I did a voice on that. And then shortly thereafter, or I think maybe even while I was in the room for that show, I auditioned in person in February of 2020 for Big Deal, which would become I Love That For You. And then that sort of all stopped because the pandemic came and stopped it all. And then in November of 2020, I had a Zoom chemistry read with Vanessa, and then I was cast and we shot the pilot that January. Um, it's one thing, you know, for Bowen to become a writer at SNL, um, but then, of course, he gets in the cast. He really becomes a big star on the show. His Emmy nominations, I mean, it's kind of insane. Um, and I, so I'm wondering what that was like for you to, you know, watch him take off in that way. And I think there's even, he does a little cameo in your special, and there's sort of a joke about well, he's more famous than you are and, and, and that kind of thing. So has that been... Um, you know, strange or challenging or how have you kind of evolved through that experience? I think the only way that it's strange is that it's bizarre to watch your best friend that you saw what like in in one stage of life become this big deal. You know what I mean? Like that, that's the only way it's strange because there's no more like, there's no more envy. There's no more like disappointment that that's not me because the reality of his life is is also different than probably you think it is. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's pros and cons to anything, you know, you know, it's not to mention wicked again, but getting your dreams is strange, but it seems a little, well, complicated. That's a line Glenda <laughs> says in wicked. I can tell that you're a big wicked Stan. I just yeah, sense I, that I, energy I, from me. I, I have not, I've not seen it. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're fine. Wait for the movie. Uh, 
with I'll definitely Grande. see that. Mm, yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> the eye roll you just did. <laughs> so that's the only thing is it's just like, wow, the reality has changed in such a way. Like now it's like Kim Kardashian running up to him at the party to take a picture with him. You know what I mean? It's like so stupid and bizarre. But that's the only way that I feel like whoa about it you know like because i now understand more about how everything works and that saturday night live is not the only job in the world which you kind of do feel when you're on the conveyor belt towards that place but then you pivot and you're like okay the world is big there's so many opportunities in this industry and you know it maybe maybe i just wasn't i just genuinely don't feel like it was meant to be and not to be this person but i do think everything happens for a reason and I wouldn't change anything that's happened. Do you you feel like you, is there any part of you that would still want to be on that show or do you feel like you fully moved on from it? It'd be a crazy pay cut, dude. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Maybe you can host someday. Yeah, I know. I feel like cool. I feel like all the people who who didn't make it in, that's the, that becomes the goal. Yeah, I think exactly. I heard, uh, Nick Kroll talking about that recently. That uh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm like, why hasn't he hosted? You know, but then you know, I actually talked to Kroll about that once because I I, I met to write on um, human resources, um, and uh, I know Nick a little bit. I, I was just on Big Mouth this year, and I, I fucking love Nick Kroll. Oh yeah, you but, were great on Big Mouth, by the way. That that oh, episode thanks. was fantastic. That was a fun one. That was really fun. And I remember t- saying to him, like, you know, describing the experience with Bowen. And, you know, I could tell that he's, you know, his, his bestie is John Mulaney. Um, so, Similar experience. There's some parallels there. Oh, several. And so I, it was just really interesting because, like, here's this person, Nick Kroll, who I, you know, who I would kill to have a career like his. You know what I mean? And, like, to know that's possible just because and, – and, 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 like, you know, inevitable if you continue to work hard and are talented, it doesn't matter if you got this one job. You know what I mean? Like you, it's the way you use successes and failures. You know what I mean? If you even want to call them that. So what are your goals now in this business? I mean, now you have this special coming out, but have you started to think about beyond that, what you, what you would want to do next if you could do anything? I really want to act more, you know, like I I think that's what I always kind of wanted. Um, and the thing about comedy too, is like, I, I love it. I love doing it, but I always felt like it was a, it was a way to get me on stage performing, Less than like me hitting the road and doing a, doing like a stand up tour or anything like that. Like as you can see in the special, like I, I'm interested in like a narrative element. Like I'm really interested in like emotion. I'm not a traditional stand up, and I don't know. I think if I think if I was going to be, I would have been by now. Do you know what I mean? Like, but I'm just attracted to other things. So right now, what I'm really interested in doing is building up my resume, like trying to work on interesting products with interesting people, and um, seeing what happens with that because. That's sort of what's interesting to me right now. And I feel like I feel really challenged and excited when I get a, an acting job. Like, I love that for you or Fire Island or even, you know, writing material for myself with the special that um, that pushes me into different, you know, emotional terrain. Because I, I don't know, like, it's, it's, it's fun for me to inhabit in that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I, what I want to do with the time we have left is uh, our segment called The First Laugh. So we're going to do a little bit of a, a speed round and run through some of these questions about firsts. So going all the way back, the the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid, uh, what comes to mind as something that 
you really connected with? It was probably Mike Myers playing Linda Richmond in Coffee Talk, the Classic. SNL sketch. I mean, that was so... I, I used to tape myself doing it. Like, it was that thing where it was like, you know, you'd put on a wig and whatever you had and like, you'd be Linda Richmond and I would cast my cousins to be the supporting characters. I think my <laughs> sister Chelsea played Madonna as Mamala. Um, and it was very... It pro- I probably had no right doing that. Uh, but like, <laughs> Mamala, you know, it was... I, I would... Shudder to think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not sure Mike Myers did either, doing. but uh <laughs> Yeah. But it worked. It worked. Yeah, no, it, it was formative. I love Mike Myers too. I wish that big broad comedy would come back. Like that's that's what I would love to do too. Is like, you know, ultimately I would love to do a reboot of like Liar Liar. You know what I mean? Or like see big comedy characters come back, maybe do something like that with Bowen as like a two-hander. So I don't know. Something like that. Um, do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny that you could make other people laugh? Yeah, I used to uh, just like, you know. Maybe at like holidays with my extended family, like, uh, you know, just doing little bits. I remember my mom, I, I used to, again, like an impression I probably shouldn't have been doing, but you remember the Tony Braxton song, He Wasn't Man Enough for Me? Like, he wasn't man enough for me. <laughs> and I used to do like a share impression with my voice. Oh, okay, and my mom yeah. used to, my Long Island mom used to point to me and be like, I'm going to get you on Rosie. <laughs> 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 just to completely date it. But like, yeah, little, being little and stupid and, you know, again... <laughs> Singing like women I heard on the radio. Yeah, yeah. But there's that, a theme. Maybe, yeah, maybe that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you know meeting comedy heroes. Um, is there a story that comes to mind about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes and and what it was like? Well, you know, I'm really lucky because Will Ferrell actually produces um, our podcast, Last Culturistas, which That's is on Big cool. Money Players. Yeah, which is his um you know his arm of you know the iHeart Media podcasting moment. That's his like company. Um. And meeting him is really cool because he's actually the sweetest, nicest, gentlest person ever. Yeah, kind of low-key. Yeah, and that was also, that took me all the way back because that was actually a way I fit in with like the straight boys in high school. I really didn't have a lot of friends when I was in middle school because I was really coming to terms with myself, like not feeling comfortable in my skin, being hyper aware that I was different. And then I remember I went to go see Anchorman. And I like had loved it because it is like weirdly like drag, you know, like they're like playing these like crazy characters and that humor was so absurd and it was just so stupid that I loved it so much. I mean, it's still to this day, I I, I think it's just amazing. It's one of the greats. Yeah, it's one of the greats. And so I would come to school and like quote that movie, and it actually got me friends. Like, and they became my friends, and those guys are still my friends to this day. Like, then we became genuine friends. But my way in was like having that reference with them. And so Will Ferrell actually came on our podcast, Las Culturistas, before we had met in person. We did it on Zoom and, you know, we knew he was producing our podcast and was going to come on and we got to tell him that. And um, he wore a hat that said, make America gay again. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, it was just, that was a really cool experience meeting him and having him invest in us. How cool is that? Again, like uh, just another formative person that I get to work with and be in proximity with. And now we have um, a podcast series that we produce with him called Clown Parade, um, which is like 10 comedians that we love that are up and coming and they're all doing character podcasts. And we open every new one with um, me, Will, and Bowen like all doing this bit together about how we're producers and like why we've decided on this project and just yeah so you actually get to do comedy with him now yeah which was so fun i mean like and and and, and the vibes were good we actually had all comedic chemistry so that's awesome um do you have a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now but really was not funny when it happened 
Yeah. I, <laughs> so this again goes back to the SNL of it all. So this is the second time we screen tested and Bowen and I are going back to 30 Rock. We actually went to 30 Rock together because we just were like you know, traveling together and we get there and they tell us, um, okay, so we're all going to put you in, we're going to put you in your dressing rooms and we actually gave you guys the same one because we figured you'd want to be together. And you're like, I love no, my girl, yeah, but like yeah. when you're, when you're preparing for SNL, you would rather be alone, you know? Of course. And he was doing this bit, which was one of his characters in his SNL uh, screen test was he was playing the choking victim from the signs, like, like, <laughs> you know, the signs in the restaurants that are like the choking victim. So he was literally practicing his like choke sounds like, <laughs> <laughs> a little distracting he was doing it non-stop and i'm sitting there and i'm like i'm like trying to run my stuff and i literally turn to him and i give him a death glare and i'm like they all sound the same <laughs> and i think it did make us laugh at the time but i was genuinely like is he fucking with me right now i was like is is this a tactic like at two <laughs> bowen like i was like this is a fucked up i was like and it's also like they do all sound the same and so, so that was like, in the moment I was like, all right, this is fucking insane. But now that is so funny and so, <laughs> so, you know, like specific. Yeah, that's really funny. Finally, I like to ask my guests about what's making them laugh right now. So what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard? Could be something you saw on TV, online, in the movies, uh, on stage, just anything that you want to shout out. You know, like one of the, my favorite things that I've seen um, is here in New York. Uh, um, it's at the Daryl Roth Theater now, but it was at the Asylum Theater, which used to be UCB. But it's this, um, it's a parody musical, which stay with me, everyone. <laughs> uh, it's called Titanic. It's um, it's essentially the story of Titanic as told through the songs of Celine Dion oh, by yes. Celine Dion as if she were on the the, the Titanic <laughs> herself. And she like, it's Marla Mandel, Constantine Rizzoli, and... It's it's they wrote it and they're in it and they're it's just so funny and it's now extended through February in New York. I'm telling you, I talked about this on Las Culturistas and all the readers, which is what we call our podcast fans, they have all went and they all come back and they're like, "Thank you for saying that. That was the most fun night." It honestly made me believe in theater again because you know I had been in I I, I came back to New York and I I always try to see a bunch of shows and. God damn it, is Broadway sad right now? Like, it's so tough. Um, but then this show was just so alive and committed to, and the singing is real, and, like, the jokes are so funny, and, like, Titanic is such monoculture that we all have a language for it, and, like, a, like a, like a hearkening back to it. I'm just telling you, like, do yourself a favor and go. It, yeah, that's it's a great genuinely, It's genuinely so funny, and just, you will leave, like, energized. You really will. Yeah, well... Matt, I want to thank you so much for doing this and, you know, getting into all of that stuff. And, and um, I just think everything you do is so funny. So I'm really glad that, that we got to do this. Thank you, Matt. And I love to connect with another Matt. You know, yeah, you, don't, you, don't see, you don't hear about Matt's nowadays. Yeah, there aren't just that kidding. many Matt's <laughs> out there. There's like 400 million mats. Like if you throw a rock, you'll hit one. And then like, like, what were my parents thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, get this, Matt Rogers. There's a, there's a Matt Rogers out there that just got nominated for a Grammy. I, I heard and it I'm, wasn't heard, you. It wasn't me. I heard I'm nominated for best country song. Oh, so no. I look forward to the ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> you should definitely show up and, and try to get on stage. Exactly. Just hit the step and repeat. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is fun. Wow. That was very fun. So I just want to send a huge thank you to Matt Rogers for being my guest on this week's show. 
His new holiday special, Have You Heard of Christmas, premieres this Friday, December 2nd on Showtime and will be available to stream after that. You can also catch up on I Love That For You on Showtime, stream Fire Island on Hulu, and listen to Las Culturistas wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.